Well, what we're doing these Sunday mornings is looking through a series of topics, a series of connected points in which we're looking at the main points of the Bible, the main points of teaching, uh, so that we will know and be able to tell the difference between what is uh, sound and true teaching and what isn't. A pastor in Geneva many, many years ago set about a similar thing to instruct his congregation in the Christian faith. And he started off with a small book and he gradually added to it and it got bigger and bigger and it became a standard, a standard book for Christians to read. The pastor was John Calvin and the book was The Institutes. And right at the beginning of it, he says these words, nearly all the wisdom we possess, nearly all the true and, that is true and sound wisdom consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. And for the last few Sunday mornings, we've been just dipping into the subject of the knowledge of God. And we've seen God as, importantly, the creator, and God as trinity, and God as the ruler, and God as the good God. And for the next few Sunday mornings, we're going to be looking to find out about ourselves. And when you think about ourselves, I don't mean as particular individuals, but uh, what are we? Who are we? It's a very important question. It underlies lots of things that happen in our world, an idea of who we are as human beings. So are we sort of machines uh, that have come together by a mechanical process of chance in which things that were lying around, as it were, in a scrap heap, suddenly assemble themselves into some machine. Is that really what we are? We're nothing but a machine. Well, I suppose that's one answer that is sort of put to us. Or are we actually advanced animals? So when we talk, it's not that much different from chimpanzees screeching at one another. And when we uh, make thing, uh, when we make buildings and works of art, it's really not that much different from uh, birds building nests. I mean, is that a, f a fair idea of who we are? I suppose animals are expendable. Does that mean that human beings are expendable? So if they're useless, you can have them put down like you would with animals. Or are we? As some people would say, are we sort of gods and goddesses? Are we, let's go to the other end of the spectrum, so wonderful that we're, we're like gods and goddesses. We can do whatever we want. We can make up our own rules. We can begin our lives as we wish and end it as, as we wish. And we're in charge of our own universe. What is a human being? What's the right way to think about ourselves? And I don't think that the 21st century has any good answer to this. No answer that really works, no answer that's really consistent. And the funny thing is that even without that answer, people still find themselves caring passionately about their fellow human beings. So I suppose one of the motivations for the uh, 
parade yesterday was the notion of equality. So people care passionately about all human beings being equal and get very angry when some human beings are treated less than others. I don't think that view is held consistently because it certainly doesn't seem to extend to the unborn human being. It's only once you're born that, you're, uh, that people clamor for equality. But why? Why do so? And, for example, caring for the weak. There are many people who care passionately about the weak, about people whose uh, lives are troubled or disadvantaged or whatever you want to say. And people do care very much. But why? What is the understanding of being human that makes sense of caring so much for the weak? Well, that's what we're going to look at this morning. And I believe that the Bible has an ace card to play because the Bible tells us who we are and why we matter. And I hope as a Christian you're aware of this and I hope to hope you'll be aware of it by the time we've, we've finished looking at this this morning. Because the Bible says, as you will already have gathered, that human beings are made in the image of God. So I'd like to think this morning a little bit about this. Uh, what is this image? And then secondly, why does it matter? And then thirdly, I'm going to ask the question whether Jesus has anything to do with it. So those are the three things that we'll look at. So first of all, let's look at the whole matter of humankind, humanity, in the image of God. Please open your Bible at Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. This is the sort of source text which Julia read for us. And it goes back to God as creator, what's in his mind, what's his intention. And it says in Genesis 1, 26, then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And it seems to be a little bit poetic, this. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. So that's the, uh, the source text. Let us make man in our image and in our likeness. Let them rule. So God made man in his image, in his image he made him, male and female he created them. And that's what we're going to think about. It's a, it's a theological topic. It's a, to do with what God teaches about himself and indeed about us. So what does it mean to be in the image of God? Well, I suppose there's a very short answer you could say, like the image on the paper, 
If you wanted to know what the window was like, you could look at the paper and you could see what the window was like. So this is saying that for, the hu for human beings, there's a sense that if you look at a human being, if you watch a human being, you will see what God is like. Which is quite a thought. So if you could imagine a man from Mars, or it wouldn't be a man, would he? A, a, an alien being who somehow wanted to know what the God who created everything was like, then you could advise him to get in his spaceship, to come to Earth, and to watch you from the moment you got up to the moment you went to bed, and to say, that is the image of God. God is like that. It's quite a responsibility, isn't it? It's quite a thought. It's quite a thought. Let's try and tease it out a little bit. So does that mean that if you've got ginger hair and you're six feet tall and got huge muscles, that that's what God's like? So is it the likeness in terms of body? And I think we're going to have to say no from that. Because God, as he is in eternity, has no body. He is incorporeal. I know that, it, that the Son of God took flesh, but that's something that happened later. God in himself is not a creature confined to a body like we are. So it's not to do with the body as such. It doesn't mean that God has a body. And also, sometimes people have said image, likeness. Ah, the image is perhaps the physical bit and the likeness is the mental bit, or maybe the image is the spiritual bit and the likeness is the physical bit. Uh, so two different parts of the makeup. And again, I'm going to say a no to that because it seems, it, I don't think there's a particular difference saying image and likeness. They're more or less interchangeable. You know how in in the Old Testament, in Hebrew poetry, you get parallels. So something is said in one, word, one set of words, then the next sentence says the same thing, but in slightly different words. And I think it's like that. Image and likeness, likeness and image, not two different things, but two ways of saying the same thing. So that's a little bit of a, um, a wild goose chase that sometimes Christians have gone off on. So let's see if we can pin it down a little bit. I think it would be reasonable to say this. What is God like in Genesis chapter 1? Because what sort of God is he? If we're made in his image, then presumably we're a little bit like that. So here are some sensible suggestions from Genesis generally. The God of Genesis makes things, doesn't he? Am I right? Yes, that's the big thing that God in Genesis does. He makes things and creates things. So it wouldn't be surprising to find that uh, if he's a creator with a capital C, that creatures made in his image are going to be creative as well. And that fits, doesn't it? You say, yeah, that explains a lot, actually. If you think back from what you know of ancient history, you'll think cave paintings, you'll think ancient uh, human beings get very confused about all of that. But one thing is certain, if they were doing cave paintings, 
which they were, they were creative, weren't they? So I think we could say this is at least part of being in the image of God, that unlike animals, animals don't do cave paintings, human beings do. And the God of Genesis is certainly a speaking God. In fact, he's doing that all the time. Every day he says something, let there be light. And God said, let there be an expanse. And God said, let the water be gathered. And God said, let there be lights. And God said, let the water teem. And God said, let the land produce. God is saying something. Every day God says something in Genesis. He's a speaking God. And it wouldn't be a surprise, in fact, it would fit very, very well, to say that human beings are speaking creatures. We are, aren't we? We use words. You don't find animals writing the works of Shakespeare. You don't find animals um, producing sentences. It's, to be sure, they produce noises, but they don't produce speech. And human beings made in the image of God, well, that might be an explanation as to why you speak and how it is that one person can touch another one by speaking. Because that's what happens, isn't it? You, your being can touch somebody else. If you say to them, I love you, you touch them, don't you? If you say to them, I hate you, then you touch them in a different way. But it's all done by words. And God is a speaking God, and the creatures made in his image speak. The God of Genesis rests. On the Sabbath day, on the seventh day, he rests, and he looks around, and he's refreshed, and he says, that's very good, and that's very good, and I'm rather pleased with the way trees have turned out, and I'm rather pleased with sky, that's brilliant stuff. And God enjoys things like that, and so do human beings, don't they? We're not just work units made to work, 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 work. We're made to be like God at some point to say, hang on a sec, I'm just going to sit down and have a cup of tea and I'm going to look at the wall I've just made. That's a pretty good wall. I'm going to look at the equations I've been studying. They're actually rather nice equations. Or I'm going to look at the, um, uh, I don't know, you, you look at things and you take pleasure in, in what has been done. And that's like God. And I would say animals don't do that. Um, machines don't do that. People do that. And then I'm going to say that the God in the Bible thinks to himself. He says that in verse 26. Let us make man in our image. So he's talking to himself. Uh, he's conscious of himself, speaking to himself. This is what we'll do. We'll make God in our image. And you notice the plural as if there is a self and another self. God thinks to himself, and so do we. We think to ourselves, don't we? At least I do. I hope I'm not unique in this. I think you, you think to yourself, don't you? You wake up in the morning, you think to yourself, what a lovely day, or you think to yourself, what a terrible day, or you think to yourself, this is what I'm going to do, or this is what I'm not going to do. I don't think machines do that. I don't think the, the um, uh, Google computers, wherever they are, wake up in the morning and say, well, what should we do today? Should we do a little search? They, they don't do that. They don't reflect 
but human beings do. And we could add to the list, I mean, let's put this, that God chooses good and judges good. So in Genesis chapter 1, he's making stuff, and as you know, you don't have to look at all the verses, but God sees that what he's made is good. So he chooses to make something good, and he looks at it and says, it is good. He chooses good and judges good. And human beings, that's a very remarkable capacity to do that. And human beings too have this capacity to choose good or not, and to be judged as good. There's a, a moral responsibility that goes along with being made in the image of God. And there's an aesthetic goodness as well. Uh, so the woman in chapter 3 says that she saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye. So she's got an artistic eye. She says that's a very attractive looking fruit. So she could tell things that look good, but I'm just thinking about the moral good. Would you like to flip over to Genesis 9-6, which particularly ties moral responsibility to being in the image of God? It's Genesis 9, verse 6. Now, I'm not doing, dealing properly with the context. I'm just picking this verse out, sort of uh, plucking it as a rabbit from a hat. But please notice what it says. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made man. So uh, uh, all I'm going to say from that is that there is a moral responsibility and a moral value to being human and it's linked with being made in the image of God. And what I'm not discussing is whether that's still in force exactly and I'm, what I'm not discussing is the death penalty but at least you could say that at this point here there is something so serious about being human that to take human life is a very, there is a big responsibility on that. And certainly this verse is saying that it is so big that the death penalty is a fair and right penalty. But no doubt there would be more to be said that if you were actually an MP um, voting on it. So I just say that in passing. So we've got quite a list of things there. And I'm going to say that, okay, here are human beings who create things, human beings who speak, who rest, who think to themselves, who have moral responsibility, who have a, a sense of what is beautiful and what isn't beautiful. Is this the image of God? And I'm going to say, yes, but. I say, yes, but. Those are aspects of being in the image of God, but not the total thing itself. I want to go a little bit further on that. So that was things from Genesis generally. Let's look at the exact text. So go back, if you would, to Genesis chapter 1 and see how God frames this creation. Verse 26, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. So I think the fact that God says let us is significant. 
So God is allowing himself to be heard in a sort of plurality. And the God of the Bible is a plurality. He's not just a single, lonely, individual God. There is plurality within God. And as Christians, we know that the plurality is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But that's something that we only realize in the New Testament. We can shed the light back into this text and, uh, and say that there is a plurality and this is reflected in the image. So it's an important thing that human beings are capable of community. So human beings are not meant to be lonely individuals in solitude on their own, because that wouldn't reflect the image of God. God says, let us. And human beings are most imaging God when they're in a community and they can say us rather than just I. And then the text says, or at least connects to 126, let us make man in our image and in our likeness, let them rule over the fish of the sea. So at least you could say there's a connection because it's the next thought that comes, the idea of ruling. And I would like to say that this is an aspect of being in the image of God. Do you remember in, it's in Daniel, isn't it, that, um, was it Nebuchadnezzar sets up an image in the plain, plain of Dura, and everybody has to bow down and worship it? I'm forgetting, but I'm getting the details right. But he sets up an image there and I think what he's doing is saying, I'm the big boss, I live over in Babylon, but just so that you don't forget here in the plains of Jura, I'm going to put a big image of myself, and that sort of shows that I'm the boss here, and I rule, as it were, uh, through the reminder of this image, or maybe even through the symbolism of this image, uh, it brings my rule into this place. And I think there's an aspect of that. How does God rule this world? Well, partly he rules it via us, his image. Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea. So we are meant to be rulers of this world under God. So we're not rulers with nobody on top of us, so we just do exactly what we want. We're accountable to no one. But neither are we without authority and dignity in this world. We are rulers under God. And I also notice that God says, or it's said in verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And again, it's not, it, it is by way of a connection and there is, because it is the next connected thought, maleness and femaleness are connected with being in the image of God. So we certainly wouldn't want to say you know, that only male gender is in the image of God, because it says male and female are in the image of God. And it brings us into the whole realm of the diversity and the difference and the richness 
and the beauty of the way we've been made sexual creatures with maleness and femaleness. And this is part of being in the image of God. So I ask uh, again, have we now finished the list? And I'm going to say, well, they are, that's to do with being in the image, image of God. But I don't think it's the thing itself. I think these are aspects of being in the image of God. Okay, am I losing you, baffling you? This is, um, it's telling us about ourselves. So what exactly is this image and likeness business? It's connected with all those other things. And I'm going to say that to give you an exact and precise an exhaustive definition of what is being in the image of God is not possible because I'm going to say that being human is actually too great in the end to put into words. So we can, we can get towards it but we can never sort of arrive and say alright now I've, understand, I've understood what human beings are let me put it this way people who are not Christians, people who don't have the Bible and are trying to work this out for themselves and thinking about humanity without God always link humanity with something lower so they say well humans are, well they're like monkeys only more or they're like machines only cleverer and that's the way they think. They think it's, it, it's like something less. And if you do that in an extreme form, you say human beings are nothing but animals or nothing but machines. So you're always reducing. You're going to what is lower. But in the Bible, if you want to answer the question, what is man, you have to go to what is higher. And you say humanity is like God and we can't fully explain God we can't tie down who God is exactly we can't exhaust the definition and the description of God and people are like him so it it means that although we're connected to the world of trees and motor cars and Costa coffee and uh, everything else we are actually creatures that are linked to something above all of that. There is something transcendent about every human being, which is an amazing thought. So I think this should lead us to wonder and respect. The psalmist says, what is man that you are mindful of him? You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. And that's a thought that we ought to keep with us. Here I am wandering around London Road. Here are the people I'm bumping into in the open market. Here are the people coming down from Sainsbury's. Each one of them made in the image of God. What an amazing thing. What is man that you are mindful of him? You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. We walk in the midst of a million miracles because that's what people are. And I think for ourselves, 
we could, in a humble way, be encouraged. Because sometimes the world tells us all we are is a little bit of rubbish. Or, or, or sometimes we feel that that's all that we are. Or we just feel that we're worthless. Or perhaps we feel that we are... I don't know. But the Bible will never let us think that. And the psalmist in Psalm 139 says, I praise you, Lord, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And that's true of every human being. Fearfully, wonderfully made. And here's another thought about putting God into places via images. Now, I don't know whether you've ever been in the home of a Greek Orthodox Christian. Maybe you have, and you would find that they have little pictures, little icons of different saints. And these are meant to sort of bring the presence of God into your front room or into your kitchen. Or perhaps you've been in a taxi in a foreign country uh, where dangling from the... Uh, mirror, the rear view mirror is a little something, perhaps a little St. Christopher or a little crucifix or a little uh, something maybe if it's a, a Hindu god or a little Buddha or something like that and th this made up thing this image is meant to bring the presence of God into the taxi or into the kitchen or whatever and the person thinks I'd like the presence of God so this is the way I'll do it and how should Christians think about bringing the presence of God into such and such a place so let's imagine that you work in an office and you would really like the presence of God to be there what should you do should you buy uh, a little picture of Jesus and ask to have it stuck up there or a little crucifix or something and I'm going to say that is not the image of God. That does not bring anything of God into the workplace. But I'll tell you what does. It's you. That's your job. You are the image of God. And if people want to look and see what God is like, don't ask them to look at a crucifix or a little... Um, picture of anybody, a saint they are entitled to look at you and say that's what God's like, the presence of God is here because the image of God is here that's what human beings are called to be, putting God into places, not via images, but via image, and I remember once when I started teaching, having that thought uh, to myself Shall I, what shall I get to put up in my classroom to show the presence of God? And I came to the conclusion I wouldn't put up anything in the classroom because the presence of God, the image of God, would have to be me. So let's move on and say, why does it matter? Or, yeah, why does it matter? Now, next week, all being well, we'll look at the way the image of God is spoilt in humankind so I don't want to I don't want to get ahead of myself but I do need to say that we're made in God's image but sin has spoiled that image and if you like you could think of a castle 
There it is in its original form, with glorious flags flying and music coming out and everything. The grand glorious castle. And sadly, the ruined and needy castle as it might now be. So I would imagine some of the Welsh castles. Did you do Harlock Castle? Bit of a mess. Yeah. Is it? I'm sad to hear that. But it was still a castle, wasn't it? You could still see it was a castle, but it wasn't in its former glory. And it needs a little bit of tender loving care and a lot of funding from the National Trust or something like that. That's the way to think of humanity. That because of Adam's sin, that's transmitted to us. And the moment we are born, we are not born grand and glorious. We are born one way or another, different, different ways. None of us is grand and glorious. We are ruined and in need of tender, loving care. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is, you could, you could put it in this way, it is, that's what it's about. It is about restoring the image of God. It's about mending us. It's about putting us back the way we ought to be. And it's a big, big job. So having said that, I want to say, why does it matter? Well, it matters because all human beings, whether they're Christians or not, all human beings still have immeasurable value now. Even the ruined castle is a special place. So I want to have a list of all sorts of people and say they're all precious, they're all valuable because they're in the image of God. So I'm going to include sinners. And of course, that's the big showstopper, isn't it? Sin spoils the image, but it doesn't remove it altogether. And I'm going to say all races are made in the image of God. So if you were thinking some races are more valuable than others simply because of their racial difference, then the Bible says you've got that wrong because all races are in the image of God. And you might think, well, it's everybody except immigrants. So we're entitled to look down on immigrants and see them as less than human. And the Bible says absolutely not. People who've come from a a foreign country, they might have different culture to one's own, but they're made in the image of God. And I'm going to say street drinkers. So sometimes when we have our community meetings, the topic almost seems to say, well, street drinkers are a a blight on our society, let's get rid of them. And, you know, how you get rid of them, I'm not really quite sure, but just get rid of them. And that can't be right, can it? Because street drinkers are made in the image of God. They are not animals to be got rid of or put down. Um, They're certainly needy people. They certainly cause trouble for themselves and trouble for other people, to be sure. But they're never less than human. And I'm going to say drug addicts. So people whose lives are... Uh, perhaps more obviously ruined or more obviously troubled than other people's, yet they're made in the image of God. And I'm going to include people of whatever sexuality. They're made in the image of God 
and therefore because of that and simply because of that have immeasurable value and I'm going to include criminals and I'm going to include the old as they become uh, perhaps uh, you know by no stretch of the imagination productive members of society but nevertheless human to be valued as such and the unborn the child within the womb who can't pay his way or uh, even speak and yet is made in the image of God and I'm going to include your family because you might be tempted to say of your family they're nothing but ah, oh, they're nothing but this they're nothing but that no includes everybody made in the image of God and I'm going to make sure that you've got the point because if you run a business your clients and customers are made in the image of God and you're not allowed to cheat them and you're not allowed to denigrate them and curse them and if you if you uh, if you lived in uh, Downton Abbey and had lots of servants then you should treat your servants as made in the image of God or if you um, are employed by other people then your bosses are made in the image of God and you're not entitled to curse them either and if you're in war your enemies are made in the image of God and you're not allowed to treat them as animals or as subhuman and I think that has a lot to say about the current um, the current conflict in the Middle East where I sadly fear that people have got into the situation of thinking that the other side is less than human and that can't be right so this tells us that we're to treat people with care and compassion we're to treat people as made in the image of God please look at James chapter 3 verse 9 And in his very practical way, James in chapter 3, verse 9, says, talks about the tongue. And it says, With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth comes praise and cursing, my brothers, this should not be so. And you see what he's saying? He's saying, We worship God, we say good things about God. But here are people made in his image and perhaps we feel free to curse them. This should not be so. We should not be out of the same mouth blessing God and cursing the people made in his image. So all people uh, have immeasurable value now and there's huge ramifications to that. But I'll just stop, carry on and make that point second thing I want to say about why it matters is that it says something about our destiny so that was to do with how we treat people now whether they're Christians or not I'm now going to say it has important ramifications about the future and to say that the ruined image is being restored that's what the Christian message is about well that's one of the ways of saying what the Christian message is about please look at Colossians 3 verse 10 
Colossians 3, verse 9 and 10. Colossians 3, verse 9. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. He says, you're a Christian. You are being renewed in the image of your creator. That's what God is doing. And part of it, I don't think the whole of it, but at least part of it is, is knowledge. It's the way your, your head works, and that's being changed. And part of that change uh, in, in, in your knowledge, in the way your head works, is, is making you back into the image of your creator. And he says, in a very practical way, if that's what's happening, don't lie to each other. It's a very practical implication. I mean, there's lots of other ones, but I'm just picking that because it's in the exact next sentence. Don't lie to each other. Don't tell each other things that aren't true. Don't try and deceive one another. Now, not everybody has access and a right to every piece of truth that you know. But don't lie to one another. It's very straightforward, isn't it? And how is that all happening? How is that renewal taking place? And the answer is, it's all to do with Jesus Christ. Chapter 3, verse 1 is all to do with Christ. You've been raised with Christ. Your life is hidden with Christ. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will appear with him. It's all to do with Jesus Christ. It's through him that this image is being restored. And I'm going to say, that's a present thing. And there's a future likeness which we don't yet know. And I please turn to 1 John 3, 2. 1 John 3, 2, which says... It says, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. He says, this is what, where we're heading in this matter of image. We're heading to be made into something which at the moment we don't know. It's hidden from us. We can't cope with it. We can't comprehend it. What we will be has not yet been made known which is an incredible thought. There is something in store for us which is so great that we can't grasp it now, but one day we will. And then he applies that. He says, uh, if, if that's what you're heading for, then you should be purifying yourself now. And I ask again, how does this happen? And the answer is through the future intervention of Jesus Christ. It's not on automatic. It's not to do with just attending church. It's to do with Jesus Christ himself. So I've got a little picture here of somebody sitting next to somebody else and looking at them. And the surprising thing is 
that this person, so this is true of whoever you're sitting next to, is either headed for glory in such a way that if you were now shown what this person would end up like, I think you would be tempted to worship them. Amazing glory. Or the opposite, which I don't dare to draw, but just to say that's not the only place people are headed. If they're they're becoming like Jesus Christ, there's glory ahead. And if they're not, they're actually becoming something so hideous and so horrible that it doesn't bear thinking about. And I'd like you to say, I'd like to ask the question, which are you? Which of those arrows are you headed on? That's the most important question anybody could ask, isn't it? Psalm 73, 17 talks about a perplexed believer. And one of the things that the believer says is, I actually thought long-term and then I understood their final destiny. So I'm, we're thinking at this moment, final destiny. The final destiny of the redeemed is breathtaking. And the final destiny of the unbeliever is appalling. And I ask you the question, which one are you on? Which of those lines will you be on? Now, I said that as a third heading, I'd ask the question, a little question about Jesus Christ, because he is crucial in this whole matter. And what I want to say is that on the matter of image, if you think carefully, the texts have said we're made in the image or we're made after the image. But of Jesus Christ, it says he is the image. Colossians 1.15 says he is the image of the invisible God. So what is true of us in a sort of limited way is true of him in a perfect way. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the exact image. You could say, unlike my little illustration image on the paper, the the, the window was smaller and it didn't have three dimensions. But Jesus is the exact image. So he's exactly like God is. He's not smaller. He doesn't lack a few dimensions that God has. He has everything that God has. He is the exact image, and that's what it says in Hebrews 1, 3. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Hebrews 1, 3. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. So Jesus is the image of which we are little sort of fragmentary limited copies and if you wanted to pull that straw a little bit further you'd 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 be taken on a thought like this that we became well we we became like adam didn't we we became fallen And in order to come and get us, to restore us, Christ had to be made like us. Hebrews 2.17 
says that in this quest for our restoration, he had to come down amongst us. Hebrews 2.17 says, for this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way. It doesn't include sin, but it includes the humanness. In order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. He had to come and enter our situation, be made like us. He had to take flesh, not sinful flesh, but the likeness of sinful flesh. And in particular, our Redeemer had to die a human death. It wasn't enough to die sort of like as an angel would or anything like that. He had to come and be made like us. So on each of those three crosses, at Calvary, there was a thief and a thief and a saviour, a man and a man and a man. He had to be made like us so that we could be made like him. And 1 Corinthians 15 says, as we bore the likeness of the man from earth, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven because of his redeeming work we shall be like him. So I ask you the question again. It actually, although the topic is image, the thought leads us to Jesus Christ. It's through him that we're now being restored. It's through him that we will one day be made glorious. It's through him. What about him? Where do you stand with him? What is Christianity to you? Is it attending meetings? Is it singing various songs? Is it a certain feeling? Or is it Jesus Christ? Because it is knowing him. It is being in a relationship, having closed with him. That's what this is all about. 